In this episode of Science Stories, I had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Figener. She's a marine biologist, a conservationist, and a science communicator. First, we talked about her research. Her Then we talked about her conservation efforts. And of, of course, we talked about the famous video of her pulling a straw out of a turtle's nose. And then we finished this talk with some personal questions and stories that are really interesting. Finally, at the end, instead of finishing with the same song I always finish, in this episode I'm going to finish with a song that was written and sung by Dr. Figener herself. Check it out. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science My guest today that I'm super excited to introduce, Dr. Figener holds a PhD from Texas A&M University in marine biology, and she defines herself as a marine conservation biologist, a science communicator, and a passionate ocean advocate. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit further, please? Sure, yeah. Uh, so I am originally from Germany and fell in love with the ocean at a pretty young age and knew that I wanted to become an ocean explorer, which I set out to do studying biology first in Germany. Then I did a master thesis already here in Costa Rica, uh, genetics on, on, on leatherback turtles. And then after that, I actually moved full time to Costa Rica to work in different conservation and research projects here. And then I decided that I still need a PhD. <laughs> I don't know if I would decide that again if I had uh, to redo things in my life. But back in the days, I thought I needed. And yeah, so I went to Texas A&M and got my PhD in marine biology. And then, yeah, I moved back to Costa Rica again. And I'm running a small grassroots NGO right here. And have also gotten pretty involved in yeah in general advocacy for ocean ocean health and more than anything the fight against plastic pollution in our oceans. So Chris, there's so many things to talk about you and your life. It's super interesting. You have a really interesting life story, and your work is super interesting. And everything you do is it's really interesting. So I'm gonna have to organize this interview in like three different kind of questions. I'm gonna focus first on the scientific aspect of your work. And then that's going to lead us to your conservation work. And then we're going to end that with some questions from the, from the public that they send 
uh, via Instagram and, and some random questions. Is that, is that okay with you? Sounds great, yes. All right, so yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive straight into the scientific part, okay? Sure. So I really like your latest article in Ecology and Evolution in which you investigate whether marine turtles have sexual size dimorphism or not. Can you tell us what, what sexual size dimorphism is, please? Yeah, sure. So sexual size dimorphism refers to if you have, um, in general, two biological sexes in a, in a population that these are not the same size, right? So if you're thinking, for example, about... Um, what's a good example elsewhere than sea turtles? Spiders. For example, in, in seals, I think seals are a great seals, example. Yeah. So you have seals, you know, seals have really, really large males that engage in big fights. And so the females are a lot smaller because, um, yeah, that's kind of what their, you know, different selective pressures decided to do with their bodies. But in, the, in turtles in general, it is actually more that you have really large females and pretty small males probably due to that females lay eggs. And so it is more advantageous to be more, well, to have more volume pretty much to accommodate a huge quantity of eggs. So that's kind of what was selected for right there. And um, when I collected data on, on sea turtles for my PhD, when, you know, I, I think every review study always happens when you kind of start <laughs> investigating your topic where you're actually doing research on, and then you're getting really frustrated with what's out there. <laughs> so this is kind of how this uh, study also came to be, because I found these really amazing comparative studies that were comparing or tried to explain sexual dimorphism in turtles, in the big group of turtles. I mean, it's more than like 300 species of, of, of turtles there. Um, kind of looking at, you know, different uh, angles, uh, genetics, um, well, the, the pretty much the evolutionary lineages, but also um, habitat and ecology. Yeah, and you mentioned that they, they, doing, they grouped all the aquatic turtles together, right? Exactly. While they were doing that, though, they pretty much always kind of separated them in three groups, terrestrial, semi-aquatic, and aquatic. And, you know, then try to, um, yeah, whatever, ask their questions. And what really bothered me is that, you know, that sea turtles are very, very distinct from... Yeah, it's kind of an oversimplification, right? Putting the freshwater right, turtles exactly. with the sea because the you know the the marine environment is so unique you know the way of how salt water just you know has a different density also the incredible long migrations that sea turtles undertake you know from their foraging areas to their to their nesting and and, and um, mating areas so of course there's some of that in some aquatic species so there's some soft-shelled turtles that also are very you know yeah, very aquadynamic as well, and they travel maybe longer distances. But even their anatomy is not, you know, one-to-one -one comparable with that of sea turtles. And so we pretty much had the hypothesis that the energy that would be needed for either one of the sexes to grow bigger is probably used for other things in sea turtles. So namely, it is <laughs> meant to uh, pretty much grow as quickly as possible. So you're not getting eaten by any natural predators anymore. And of course, it is also used to travel, right? The energy expenditure that you have as a male to travel and males travel every year, whereas females travel only every, yeah, every two or three years. And then of course, for the females to produce the eggs, right? So that's, that's kind of the whole idea about it. And 
yeah, lo and behold, when we really did the study and when we did different approaches of, of trying to compare, we could see there is a certain amount of difference um, for some reason, especially in green turtles. But in the other species, and also if you think about how large a sea turtle is and the percentage of how much bigger a female is, it's really, really tiny compared to all the other aquatic species that there are out there. Um, yeah, so that is kind of the, the paper that we wrote and said, you know, it's all nice and nice and good that, you know, comparative studies, I think they're great, but I don't think it is valid to group sea turtles with other aquatic turtles. I mean, it makes total sense if you look, if you look at now that you have the results. And I really like the in the discussion section that you suggest that it's related to the sustained long distance swimming that both sexes have to endure, right? And, right. and you describe all the adaptations that both sexes have for such long distance swimming. Can you briefly walk us through these adaptations that are amazing? Yeah, I mean, general sea turtles, right? The group mm -hmm. of sea turtles, they have pretty much become more, more streamlined. And so one of the major differences between any other turtle and sea turtles, and I don't know if a lot of people know that, is that this very, you know, a cartoonish idea of turtles where they can retract their heads and their flippers back into their shell is lost in sea turtles because their shell has become smaller and also the main commotion are their front flippers. And so the, the chest muscles have become so big that even the little space that was left over was pretty much taken up by those chest muscles. And they, of course, have these incredible paddle-like flippers. So they're phalange, so they're the finger bones pretty much have grown really, really long into this absolutely impressive flippers and everything else, you know, their, their shell itself is from the bony structure, a little bit reduced compared to other sea turtles. So it's it's more buoyant, more, more floaty. So for the audience that is not familiar with scientific production, we were talking about a review paper and a review paper, basically what it does, it summarizes all the data that is available from other articles, right? And you took the, the really long way and, uh, and uh, by going to each original article cited in other reviews, and you collected extra data from peer-reviewed studies, from student theses, and from reports. And this is the opposite of going to the field and being with the turtles yourself. <laughs> do, do you also enjoy this part of the job? Uh, you know, it's just, I think once you start digging into the topics and then you start looking at the first study and then you kind of see, oh, wait, he cited the same study than this other author, but he cites different numbers. And then you're like, wait a second. So what does the original study actually say? You know, is it this or is it that? And so you're already down this wormhole, <laughs> this rabbit hole that you're kind of, you know, trying to figure out what's the truth. I don't know if I really enjoy it more. I think it's part of the, of the work, but... Um, I mean, I think you want to talk about the other review study as well. I remember when I wrote that study, it took me almost two years that I literally told people in my uh, closer kind of circle of friends that if I would ever think about doing a review study again, that they should slap me really hard in the face because it was totally crazy. Yeah, that's, that's kind of where I was going because whether you like reviews or not, you published another one in 2019 about the trophic ecology of marine turtles, right? Right, but this one was a little bit crazier than the, the smaller one that we just published. So the other one was really... <laughs> yeah, it was that massive. Was, it was massive, yeah. yes. But before, before you tell the people what stable isotope studies are, 
can you explain the concept of resource partitioning and intra and interspecific competition? Because I think here there's something that, that people might be surprised that usually intraspecific competition is harder than interspecific competition, right? Our world is divided in different niches, right? So that means maybe there's the niche of, of, of eating jellyfish, there's the niche of eating corals, there's the niche of eating seagrass. And if you're staying within your niche, you have no issues because, you know, as a species at least, because, you know, nobody is going to compete for the same resource that you're competing in. But then, of course, as soon as, for example, one of the species ventures into the niche of another one, that is when you start to have something what we call competition, right? And depending of how specialized you are as an animal, so that means you can really only feed on the seagrass, or if you're able to say, well, if that other species is also feeding on my seagrass, maybe I can also venture and feed on some corals, then, you know, you might have a better chance of not being outcompeted by that species. And this is pretty much what, what the partitioning idea uh, and resource partitioning idea kind of tries to explain. Also what, you know, a trophic niches. So that means the, the feeding niche of an, of an animal. And what we looked in to when I wrote this other review paper is that I was interested very much in nutrition and, and feeding ecology of sea turtles. Because from the evolution, I mean, we knew there were, you know, once upon a time, more than 30 species, different species of sea turtles. But for some reason, most of them got extinct for whatever reasons. And we only have these seven extant species nowadays that seem to be at least very distinct in this one aspect because they are all living in the tropics because they are ectotherm so that means they have to depend on on you know on on the environment to regulate their body temperature so that means they need warm waters they nest even on the same nesting beaches so that means they in theory would compete for nesting habitats and so where they differ though is the types of prey that they're preying on at least that is kind of what we thought and, and they're very specialized, even when you look at, for example, their skulls, you know, you can really see that, you know, over the millions of years, they have really developed very specific or specific mandibles, very specialized mandibles for whatever prey they're specialized on. However, when people kind of look into the idea of how new species form, then, you know, before you even have these morphological adaptation, there's a lot of other stuff happening before you become that specialized or like that, you know, kind of, yeah, where, where morphology changes. And so we were interested of if, you know, sea turtles really are that strictly separated and if all the populations within one species really do the same thing, or if is there not more to the story, right? Also, if there is a difference, for example, between adults and, and younger turtles, and so, as you can tell already from like the complexity of what I'm saying, this is pretty much what the review looked into. And to kind of cut a long story short, uh, we found a lot more layers to the whole story, a lot more overlap between species, but even within species that, you know, the what we call the intraspecific competition is actually a lot higher. Yeah, at every level thought. that you looked, you found that there is variation in resource use. And that's yeah. that's crazy because you you looked at different species, same different populations within the same species, and then even mm -hmm. between the sexes, right? Yeah. And then between within the same sex, in different adult individuals. Yeah. 
and you found that it's. I mean, we did. We we did not do like we did one big meta analysis for the differences of like different species, and then we tried to really kind of just from what was out there in the scientific literature, kind of pull the information together for those different levels, also to show that sea turtles. You know, I mean, a lot of times when sea tr- or people go out and study sea turtles, it's it's you know their main idea is really about conservation which i totally actually can sign up well like i I can yeah sign for it but you know sea turtles are so much more interesting and i mean there is such a large body of data out there that i think is not really used to you know to to the extent it could be used to answer other questions and that was kind of the second point that we made with our paper that you know just using it and reusing data that is already there can be really useful in answering about evolution and ecology. In yeah, such and, a, I, and I really example. like that that this establishes that turtles are robust sentinels of the ocean health, and they they likely stabilize marine food webs, right? Which, and, and I'm quoting you here, which provides a material argument for the conservation beyond their charismatic appeal. Yeah, I mean, it is really this idea of like a keystone species of you know that we really have a lot of times not even an idea what the function of a species is within an ecosystem besides them looking cute right i mean they have really important they have a important job to do to keep our oceans healthy and we are really only scratching the surface of understanding all of those interactions dr figener this this study lead to martuzzi the the huge data set about oh, martur is i okay martur s i sorry yeah <laughs> no, that's okay. We, we couldn't come up with a better name for it. It's Marine Turtle Stable Isotope uh, Database. Well, I mean, since I already accumulated all those articles that we, you know, built the review from, we just kind of decided, you know what, it's it's kind of nice if that would be available to other researchers afterwards. And so we pretty much uh, loaded it up to Dryad, which is like an open file sharing um, platform in the internet. And then just wrote like a little paper about it just to show or like explain to people how they can use it, what's even available, what type of data is available, and then how they might be able to use it in future if they want to. So they don't have to go through the same work that I have gone been going through, like assembly. Which is amazing, right? To have that open source database available for anybody that wants to look into it. I like sharing data. I like collaborating because it makes usually everything so much better. It's just really sad. I think the times anyways of like the one author studies are kind of over. Um, I think nowadays it's really all about bigger picture and more people and more data sets. And of course, our technologies make all of that possible, right? Um, I think the only critique I have is that now that I, for example, I'm not affiliated with a university university anymore, but with, you know, a small conservation organization, we would never be able to pay the open access fees, uh, which a lot of people don't even realize that when we publish as a researcher, if we publish for free, um, the people that want to read the article need to pay for the access. And if we are publishing for the general public for free, which is called open access. We as the authors actually have to pay thousands of dollars to make it open access. Yeah, and the reason, so, yeah, the reason yeah. that's that's the way it's set up is because we don't want any money coming from the outside that might influence the right. content of the articles, right? Right. 
Well, yeah, but I mean, who makes money with it are the journals, right? That yeah. are publishing it. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> a, a, a problem that needs a solution, but I don't think anybody has come up with a good one yet. Nope, not yet, <laughs> not yet. Dr. Figner, yeah. in, in 2017, you did a study of epibiont variability in turtles. And, and I believe this is a study that you were sampling for when the famous video was recorded, right? Right, yeah. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Nathan Robinson, he was actually the, you know, the lead author and also the person interested in ectobionts. And since I was out in Costa Rica already collecting data for my PhD and had already, you know, set up, yeah, surveys by boat where we caught turtles for my, my study, um, he pretty much just asked if we would be willing to start sampling bions uh, every time we like sampling our stuff anyways. And then this one very fateful day, he was actually on the boat visiting as well, because most of the time we were just collecting for him. But he was visit visiting when we saw this like, you know, turtle that had something funny encrusted in its nose. We thought it was a barnacle. Mm -hmm. And that is how the story started. Mm -hmm. But before we talk about the video, and probably most of the people are waiting for this part of the talk, um, I know you're not the lead scientist in this article, but do you know why the epibion communities vary between male and female turtles? I don't think there is like a conclusive answer. Mm -hmm. It is likely because of the way of how females especially come on land to lay eggs. And I mean, that particular a species that we looked at is what, what they engage in what we call synchronized mass nesting or arribadas. So that means it's a huge, really, really high density of females that crawl up onto the beach and on top of each other. So there's a lot more chance of passing on certain ectobionts likely than it would be between males, for example. So I think that is just kind of a reflection of that. But yeah, I don't think there is a really like a one conclusive ultimate answer. Dr. Figner, we have to do a little short break. When we come back, can you tell us all about the video? Sure. Happy to. Remember, you're listening to... Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Kicks, I've been feeling it since 
back with Dr. Figener. Before the break, we were listening to Feel It Still by Portugal The Man. And now we were listening to No Roots but by Alice uh, Merton. Uh, why did you pick these songs? Well, since I'm talking about my work, I thought it's going to be a little bit work-related. So we have, uh, when we do field work, usually we have for different occasions, like everybody on the team can choose one song with the mood and um, this one the first song feel it still was actually one particular season i had like the best research assistant team ever uh, seriously it was like the dream team and it was like our happy song that we like put on when it was a good night on the beach and uh, we were celebrating in the car and uh, alice morton actually is um when i was really really tired and i had to drive three hours to <laughs> to recharge our ultrasound batteries, even though I hadn't slept a single second. That was like when I blasted that song <laughs> and sang along. Um, what, what is, what, why did you have to drive three hours to recharge the battery? Well, the field sites are sometimes so far off and they don't have electricity. So every two or three days, I would need to go to the cl closest town, um, which was three hours away and then recharge the ultrasound, get ice cubes for our blood samples uh, on the beach. Yeah, those kind of things. What, what did you use the ultrasound for? So I um, attached satellite transmitters to turtles and in order to define their reproductive status, so that means to know whether they are going to come and nest again or if they're done for the season, we're ultrasounding their pretty much reproductive tract to see if there's still follicles or if there are no follicles anymore. That's amazing. So can you tell us about the famous video? I know you've told this in, in many <laughs> podcasts already and it's kind of, you know, those bands that make a great song when they're 18 and then when there are they're 60... Call, they're called One Hit Wonders. Exactly. And then when, there are, the, when there are 60, people still ask them about the song they wrote when they were 18. <laughs> so I'm not saying that's your case because you're you're killing it every day, but... Do you mind walking us through that day? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I hope I'm not a, just a one-hit wonder. But it, it's funny because people tend to reduce me to just this video, though. You know, as if I didn't exist as a person or scientist before that video and if I haven't done or do anything ever since. So I appreciate, actually, that we're talking about my science as well, um, even though it's not that that many people are interested in it. Um, yeah, the video is... Yeah, I guess nowadays considered the kind of pivotal moment for the anti-plastic movement. And what happened was that while we were collecting data in Costa Rica, we found a turtle that had a plastic straw stuck in its nose. So that's kind of the short version of it. Uh, we've never seen anything like that before. It was a massive surprise for us as well. I mean, we're totally aware that plastic is an issue for sea turtles. It has actually been documented since the 1980s and even before that, um, usually as ingestion. So sea turtles eat plastic. And of course, sea turtles get entangled in plastic, especially when we you know, talk about fishing and ghost fishing uh, or ghost fishing nets. But having something stuck in, a, in its nose, that was a kind of a new thing. And it wasn't just any 
item. It was an item that a lot of us are using every day, uh, maybe not even just once, especially in the US American culture. I think plastic straws are very prevalent. I mean, coming from, from, from Europe, coming from Germany, it was never such a big thing, to be quite honest. I mean, if you go in a restaurant, you usually have to ask for, for a straw to even get it. But I know that in, in, in the US, it's different. And so, of course, when we had this trader with a straw, you know, you immediately felt guilty just because it is something that, you know, I think everybody can say they have used it at one point in their life. And, you know, you don't really know what happens to all your trash. I mean, now I know a lot more about what happens to our trash and I can tell you it's not pretty. And uh, so when we uploaded this video, it was, of course, shocking to a lot of people and a lot of people that probably have never even thought about sea turtles or plastic. And it taught me, at least as a scientist, a very valuable lesson. And that was like, you know, how powerful social media and media in general can be when you really try to get a message out. And I think the second lesson really is that there is a point, especially in the time and age that we're living in, you know, climate change and other things that are really literally threatening our human existence, that we scientists cannot remain the silent bystanders. Because we are the ones that are actually having and understanding the data that is collected. And we have a responsibility to, first of all, make that data accessible and understandable to the non-scientist public. And second of all, I think it is totally legit for us to also have an opinion about it, right? Because in the end, we are humans. We're not just scientists and we're not some neutral object robot thing that you know doesn't feel anything about it and i, I love that you say that because that, that's the idea of this podcast specifically i want to show that <laughs> the scientists are not robots that we are human too right and i think this is okay i think it is becoming more and more okay nowadays right i think diversity in sciences are increasing so i think the type of scientists also changes so i don't think it's the this typical introverted a nerdy person anymore, uh, you know, that is barely, you know, walking out into the sunshine or prefers to be far off of humans. I mean, I have to say I'm an introvert by heart, but I also understand the responsibility really that I have to, you know, to communicate science, to communicate my science, but also other people's science, because if it's not communicated, then people will not have access to it. And then they can be really literally fooled by politicians and other people that try to make them believe that it is or the world works somehow differently than it actually does. <laughs> so after this video, you, you write a really nice article in Nature that it's uh, something is like, what what did I learn after pulling a straw from a turtle? And yeah. at, the, at the end, regarding the topic we were, we were just talking about now, like about outreach and communication, you say that maybe a few hundred scientists read the peer-reviewed article in which you register this encounter of a straw in a turtle, whereas millions of people saw the video. And, and literally, there's I think the video right now has 100 million views on YouTube. And you, and you live... You leave an open question, which is, which had the bigger impact? Well, yes. I mean, I, I, I would say definitely the video, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I agree. And but the thing is, though, it's so difficult sometimes to convince scientists to 
to let go of this idea that, you know, it is so important. I mean, I agree that it's important to have peer-reviewed studies, but there's no value to those studies if nobody reads it, right? So that means, like, how many people do you think are going to read my sexual dimorphism paper, right? I mean, it will be a selected few that are interested in that topic, and then it will collect dust in somebody's, you know, drawer or in somebody's hard drive. And that's the end of it, you know? So I think, first of all, I like science that is actually applicable, um, you know, that has some somehow a meaning for the future and doesn't just include some throwaway sentences. I mean, I think I got to that point in my life where, you know, I, I want every time I read in a scientific paper and it's like, and it also has meaning for climate change, but without stating what it actually is. It's, it's just, you know, something that everybody feels obliged to, to include, but nobody really wants to give ideas of how that idea can be applied. And the second thing is really about, well, okay, the next step after you have a peer-reviewed article is you need to make sure that this gets out, you know, out of the ivory tower of science and into the public. And that is something I think that our academic system is just totally wrongly set up because scientists like to talk to other scientists because that is where we get our confirmation. Uh, I think, you know, what we a lot of times need, our affirmations of how great as of a scientist we are. So that means, you know, our currency are peer-reviewed studies, how many other scientists cited those studies, but with or outside of the world of academia, it has no meaning whatsoever. That's the funny thing, right? The, the, the more I actually work outside, it's so funny when you tell people about it and they're like, hey, what are you even talking about? Do you mean like nobody knows that scientist? And I was like, yeah, I know because that science is, is only known within the walls of science, right? And I think that's sad. I don't think that, I don't think it's right to be so exclusive because we're not going to solve the world's problems like that, right? So we need to to somehow think about it differently. And that's actually one of the reasons why I left like hardcore academia, because I just felt that is not the place where I will make a difference in this world. Yeah, I really like that. For example, in our podcast, you said that you got your PhD so that you can have the title, so you can have independence. Like you were, you always knew you were not gonna work in academia. And even though they try to try to pull you into academia, you, you always knew that's not what you wanted and you're super critical about academia. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it has its place, but I think it needs to be reformed. I really think that, you know, the, the golden hour or like the golden ages of academia as well, that, you know, a lot of our professors have, you know, gotten into after they got their PhD, they don't exist anymore, right? It's not like... You get a professorship and then it's like the big, great freedom and you can do all kinds of amazing studies. You have money without problems. I think nowadays it looks very different. And up until you might get to that stage in your career, there's so many other things that are so confining, I feel, you know, so claustrophobic and so many things that I really don't want to waste my energy on. Um, in this article, you say that it, it's full of big egos, that oh, sometimes yeah. care more about <laughs> advancing themselves than a cause. First of all, like that's really brave of you to write it down. And do you mind if I ask you what happened? Or do you have a specific... Well, I mean, with my, with my editor, I kind of said, you know, because you don't have like an infinite amount of space. And plus, I don't feel like I really need to 
always give exact examples, but it's, it's, it, I try to summarize a lot of my experiences that I had. And I mean, I don't want to, of course, be, uh, you know, offending anybody, but academia a lot of times is a world of white old men that, you know, like to be in charge and like to feel important, that have a very fragile ego. And I've seen very ugly things, you know, about how professors took away students' work, put their own names on it, how, you know, it wasn't about really collaborating and, and it's always, you know, about jealously guarding data. It was about as soon, you know, when you thought, okay, somebody is really on your side and then all of a sudden when it kind of came down to, okay, it's, it's you know, either you get the opportunity or I get the opportunity. Of course, it was, hey, I want to have that opportunity, you know, so there was not the celebration with you for, for actually achieving something if that makes sense yeah, yeah and then really kind of concretely also it's like yeah people i mean there is a big um lobbying organization in the states right now that have taken my stuff and are using it even my images and pretend that i'm saying things that i don't saying right so, i mean that's a different thing than ego but that's another thing that you know you get misinterpreted or you know you kind of yeah people I just kind of out for themselves. So, and I find that academia is definitely, um, you know, you can find a lot of that there, but I also have to say, it's not much different in certain aspects in the um, advocacy and policy area, neither. It's, it's similar. It's maybe just human nature, but that's the reason I just rather do my own thing <laughs> and collaborate with the people that do want to collaborate. Dr. Figuera, this, this video triggered the anti-straw movement in, in the world, basically, right? And, and there's many articles that have been written about this movement, but there was one that particularly caught my attention that is called Straw Wars, that was published on Slate. And it discusses all the turmoil in the straw industry after the video and, and after the movement. And the numbers they mentioned, the millions of dollars industry changes and shifts that occurred, all because of your video. It's, does that blow your mind? How, like the repercussions of what you are doing, basically? Yes, it totally does blow my mind. Plus, I also am very careful of saying it is just the video. I think it is this like crazy ripple effect, right? There mm -hmm. is something you kind of throw the stone into the <laughs> into the ocean and then it creates those crazy ripples. And of course, there were already people before the video that were working in the space, that were working against plastic, that were even working against plastic straws already that, you know, saw the moment and saw, okay, there is a tool that I can now use to go and talk to different policymakers, to, to industry and all of that. I actually know from an insider that told me that uh, Starbucks, I guess when the video first came out in the first days, that there was really, they were really scared before seeing the video if the straw would have been green. Because it would have been, you know, very, very, very bad for their business because it's so... Well, everybody knows green straws yeah, are yeah, somehow definitely. connected to Starbucks, right? So that is like, and I think they were very relieved it wasn't a green straw. But the, it just shows, and I mean, we're just talking about one single use item, right? I mean, at this point, we have found literally also a plastic fork, a plastic spoon in a turtle's nose. And I think there's so much other useless plastic that we are, you know, just using because we are, it's convenient and we are lazy. And... I think the times are a little bit over. So I think people, you know, try to 
not harm the environment anymore, not try to harm sea turtles. And, and, you know, sometimes though, if you talk about things like that, or even when you ask me, wow, the change that you created, it's so abstract, right? If, if I think about, wow, what came from my video over the past now almost seven years, um, what has happened, the difference in policies. And, and I guess, I mean, I was told by LA County that they actually use my video in court to push the policy to, to, you know, ban plastic straws and then so many other things that happened. And then again, though, if people don't see the pain and suffering, it is again, so abstract to even understand the issue of plastic, right? Because if you just see huge amounts of plastic, well, that's ugly and, and, and not very, well, I don't know, you don't want to have that in your backyard, but I think it's really about this, you know, kind of human angle that you feel with that turtle that, made so many people change and cringe and all of that. Yeah, the video is it's heartbreaking. There's an article that says the performance of the turtle is brilliant, which is funny, of course, but but it is true. I mean, it's so heartbreaking. I, it, it doesn't surprise me it has gone viral because of that, you know? I, I, I also know that you asked, you, you were thinking, debating whether to upload it or not because it's so graphic. Yeah, I, I actually, because I was in my PhD program, right? I mean, there was the university attached to it and my supervisor. So I remember I sent her a, a message and I said, hey, this is what happened. Um, I don't really have time to edit it right now because, you know, I'm going to be on the boat again. So also, I don't feel like I want to edit it because I suffered through the eight minutes of while we extracted it. No, I don't feel like I need to censor it so everybody else can sleep more soundly at night. And what I really loved is like she was immediately saying, no, upload it as it is because people need to see that. And that's what I did. That's kind of, you know, it's totally unedited. Literally just what was on the SD card, the file one-on-one -on -one went on to YouTube with all the cursing, everything in between. Is it true that you didn't yeah. know if you if you had gotten the last part when the, when the actually straw comes out <laughs> because you didn't know if you had enough battery? Well, yeah, I mean, my battery was already low. So, you know, when the battery sign flashes and you can hear in the video itself, like when you listen to it, then I'm talking to my assistant, asking her to look for batteries in the in our boxes. And then when the straw came out, it it turned dead. The camera just turned dead. And I had I did not know because sometimes, you know, cameras are lagging behind when they record something and save it. If it had really recorded this moment where we had the straw out of the turtle or not. So that was also a big secret up until we got home because the battery I had on board was not charged. Um, and yeah. Like, like the I mean, I think it's crazy that when you go viral, and I think it's a matter of probability, when numbers increase, odd events become more likely to be seen, right? And where I'm going with this is that I thought it would be obvious that banning plastic straws is a good thing and yet <laughs> some, some people bring up these points that you have to address for example i saw the interview that you had at the stream and i was really surprised by some people backlashing the banning on straws because they have disabilities and for example i'm quoting one of the persons that appears there and says that paper straws disintegrate really fast and the metal straws are too hard to clean independently so in short, banning plastic straws is an assault on my independence. Yeah, well, first of all, that person that said it did not have a disability, but he was, I guess, was chosen as a voice for people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. I do not want to say that this is not true. What I have to say is, though, that, you know, paper straws totally depends on the quality. 
And I also think that, you know, if you are depending on plastic straws, then why don't bring your own? I mean, that is just like in so many other things, you know, I think you can always think about ways. I honestly have talked about that with other people, other people that have disabilities, and they did not understand that opinion. And they actually told me that they think there were other interests at play where they were trying to, you know, push that agenda and actually pushing another agenda in the back. And that is the plastic industry has a massive interest in keeping single-use plastics alive because plastics are made from petroleum, which is fossil fuel based as well. And since our cars are becoming more and more fuel efficient, the plastic industry, especially the U.S. petroleum companies, are actually really banking on or betting on plastic production for the future to, to make their money. And those bans everywhere are definitely not helping <laughs> and so they you know this lobbying this lobbying institute that is actually using my image is really it's i think they have a video it's called not all plastic is created equal and it's it's very it's very intelligently done because they're really trying to make you know people believe that i'm saying well yeah plastic is bad but it's not all plastic which you know it's not that i totally disagree with that but i think it's just for the lack of a better material at this point right so for me, it's just so crazy to think about because, I mean, sea turtles and marine animals aside, there's more and more scientific evidence that plastic is toxic. Yeah. So because we have so much plastic around, we are ingesting plastic on a pretty high rate. We are actually eating about the, a credit card worth of plastic every single week. Uh, every person has been surveyed, has microplastics in their feces. Uh, we have found plastics in the placenta of pregnant women. We have found plastics in even babies already. They can, you know, depending on the, the, the size of the plastic particle, they can already get into our cells and destabilize our cells. And if you then think about, you know, the importance of intestinal bacteria or intestinal flora organisms that we now know more, more and more about, you know, how it's connected to mental health, like anxiety, depression, also obesity, other um, autoimmune diseases such as Morbus Crohn, but irritable bowel syndrome and all of that. And then you throw plastic and its toxins into this whole thing. It's insane. Also plastic, you know, like BPA and other similar substances are endocrine disruptors. So, um, you know, we know already they are kind of messing with our hormones. So why would we even want to have plastic for our own health? You know, you can really not care about sea turtles and should be really worried about plastics. Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories.
Before the break, we listened to Supermassive Black Hole by Muse. And now we, I think the Costa Rican life has gotten into Dr. Figener because we're listening to Mark Anthony, Vivir la Vida. Why did you yes. pick these songs? Well, Supermassive Black Hole was actually one of my pump up songs. So when I get up in the middle of the night and you know kind of have to shake off the last bit of sleep before you head to the beach and collect some data. I always look for songs that really a little bit aggressive, you know, kind of go out and you kill it. Kick some poacher buds. That was one year. So I usually have I change it every year, but this was one year my one of my favorites. And then um yeah, Mark Anthony, I just love dancing salsa. So of course I acquired that um uh, that love in Costa Rica, and so I thought that would be fun to just add that. Dr. Figener, what is the main line of research regarding plastic and conservation nowadays? Is it researching for alternative materials or, or a way to degrade it faster or to recycle it more efficiently? Have you seen the recent discovery of an enzyme that degrades plastic in 24 hours? It was a nature paper that came out recently yeah, the main line of research doesn't really exist it really depends of you know what you're looking at so if you talk about conservation it's about the effects of plastic that they have on on animals that they have on us humans as well so there's way lots more health studies nowadays because we really don't know much about it which is crazy if you think about how many decades plastic have already been a part of our lives So, you know, the advent was like, you know, right after Second World War, 50s, 60s, becoming every housewife's best friend in the kitchen. Um, but the, you know, it, from the engineering side, it is definitely, and also from how advocates see the solution to the plastic issue, it's really, you know, thinking about alternative materials that are not as harmful to the environment, that have similar properties to, to plastic, um, that are not toxic, and uh, not so much about how we can re how we can recycle our way out of this crisis, right? Because that is really what the plastic industry and the industry itself wants us to do. They always want to make us feel responsible for the problem that we have, even though they are the ones that produce all that, yeah, not so great material. And it's a lie, recycling doesn't work. So that means we really have to think about kind of stepping away from plastic. And that's that's the bottom line. And that is really where the research should focus on, right? If you think about um, engineering, like material engineering. Um, since we're talking about technology and conservation, there's a piece of news that came out in, in science that they mentioned the use of GPS X to fight turtle poachers. Have you Have you heard about yeah. that? Yeah, actually, that study was done here in Costa Rica. It is a nice idea, but the application is kind of not really, it doesn't really change anything because, you know, it's not about, I mean, what, what the, the GPS X would provide us right now is more than anything, the information of who is poaching and where those eggs are going, transported to. And to be quite honest, we know all of that already. Yeah, that's what I thought when I read it. That isn't this information yeah. that we already know? And 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 so the thing is really more about you know what can be done about it because I mean <laughs> here in Costa Rica, sea turtles are protected. Uh, we are part of 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 you know CITES and and and, and other um, global uh, initiatives as well. But the problem is just to have those laws don't 
mean anything if they don't get executed, right? So in theory, if you poach turtle eggs, sea turtle eggs, you can go in or you can go to prison for up to three years. But to be honest, I don't know. I don't know of a single case where that has happened, hmm. you know, because people are not willing to to really persecute that. So I don't think it's nice and, and fluffy, but the reality really means, you know, I think something in the law enforcement has to change first before any of the other stuff is going to make sense. What about the bionic robofish to remove microplastic? <laughs> you posted about that and I was super curious. Well, I don't know. I mean, this is just, I think I'm, I'm always, you know, thinking that it's cool when there's new technologies out there. I think that is, you know, I, I love innovation. I'm always thinking, man, we are almost capable of sending people to Mars. So we should be able to figure out how to solve the problems on our planet. I mean, I really don't want to move to Mars. I mean, all the polluters and all the, I don't know, people can go to Mars and live in the desert if they want to. But I really would love to, you know, restore our blue planet. And so, yeah, the bionic fish, I mean, we need to think of ways of how we can get microplastics out of the environment. Problem is also, though, you know, that we don't even know what to do with, with the microplastics that we would collect, right? So that is another thing because people now start to install filters in the washing machine. That's like one of the major um, sources of microplastic, our clothing, because our clothing is made from plastics as well. But then it's like, yeah, well, what are you going to do, though, with when you clean the filter? Are you going to put it in the, you know, in your normal trash can? Because you can't really recycle it. So, you know, we're still lacking ways of really kind of get rid of plastic. That is still another thing that we need to solve for sure. Dr. Figener, one of the ideas of this podcast is to tell all these untold stories that happened while during science that they never make it to publications, okay? So I'm going to ask you a, a short array of short questions and we'll see if you have a story re regarding any of them, okay? So, for example, have you ever been in a shipwreck while sampling? In a shipwreck? Yeah, some sort of mm -hmm. boat accident or anything? Well, we got, like, we killed over in a canoe. I almost drowned in my car in a river. <laughs> wow. What happened? Well, we were like driving for a really long time and it had been raining quite heavily and we almost made it home. We were literally like five or ten minutes from where we were going to spend the night and I had passed that particular river and that particular bridge like a hundred times before. And uh, so I was doing something that I usually never do because the bridge was flooded with water so you couldn't mm. see that bridge anymore. And instead of going out and, you know, checking for it and feeling for it, which I would always do if I don't know the river crossing. I kind of said, ah, I know where it is. I'm going to gun it. And I almost made it. But one of my front tires slipped off the side of the bridge. And then we got stuck like after one of those massive um, alcantarillas, like one of those yeah. sewage things. And so I couldn't even go backwards anymore. And we were stuck in the car, like the passenger seat side started to fill up with water and Yeah. Oh my God. So we had to be pulled out. Wow. Anyways, yeah, we were even made it to the local news that day. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had encounters with dangerous fauna? Yeah, I mean, we have uh, venomous snakes here in Costa Rica. So one of our sampling trips, luckily none of my people, but while we were in the camp of another sea turtle camp, one of the volunteers got bit by the by a fertile lens. Oh. And so... Um, Yeah, unfortunately, though, none of the uh, people in charge in the camp 
had any idea of how to deal with a snake bite. So I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm so German and responsible. So I am a trained wilderness first responder. And um, yeah, so I kind of yeah, took care of her, made sure that she is keeping still and is getting transported as quickly as possible to the next uh, hospital three hours away. Um, yeah, because the Spanish research assistant was suggesting, you know, to cut it open and suck out the venom. I was like, oh, my God, I'm like an Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, <still."> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, this can't be happening. But yeah, no. So that is venomous. Um, can, you tell me, can you tell me the story of a surfer that worked for the U.S. Border Control and helped you with some stuck samples that you had at the border? Oh, <laughs> Well, that is another story. Yeah, so our samples, when we renewed our import permit for the United States, the person that renewed the the, the permit, you know, forgot to write something very crucial in the permit. And that said that, you know, you can, that we're pretty much allocating samples. So that means I take one sample and then I cut it into four parts and then I store it in different liquids. So that means even though I only sampled like, let's say 200 animals, I was traveling with like close to a thousand vials, which still contain only those 200 animals, but you know, in different parts or different pieces. And so when I arrived in Houston, I was taking away my samples and we couldn't get a hold of anybody to, you know, help us to figure out how to get it out of customs. And so we just got emails telling us pretty much it had moved like once step higher up and we had to petition and la 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 one step higher and so in the end well we did all of that but in the end we got a phone call from like a third party evaluator that was kind of given our case and i guess we kind of um, tickled his interest because he had just come back from costa rica surfing <laughs> and happened to be exactly at one of those beaches where i had been taking samples and so he gave us a phone call, which I guess he, he usually never does, and asked us about like what actually happened and, and you know what's what the problem was. And so he was nice enough to pretty much give us our samples back. That's so because cool. otherwise it would have been incinerated. That would have been three years of my field work. That's so yep. cool. This yeah. might be a, a dumb question, but in all the videos you have a really nice turtle figure that hangs from your neck. Is there a story behind that particular piece? Yeah, well, so we have an artist here in Costa Rica that used to um, make jewelry out of tortoiseshell. So that tortoiseshell, for those people that are not aware, is actually from an endangered sea, uh, sea turtle, um, the hawksbill turtle. It's the carotene layer of the carapace. And um, so with the years, already decades now, he pretty much switched away from, uh, from tortoiseshell and started making his jewelry from uh, the leftover stuff from the meat industry. Um, hoof and horn from cows and bones from cows and um, I found a, a seashell many many years ago that had like mother of pearl and I asked him if he could make me a turtle from that particular shell and he did and it was very beautiful but after I don't know seven eight years um, it actually broke and so he made a new one for me of like a shell that he had found um, yeah and I just kind of wore it all the time actually i just lost the um i just lost the leather string i had it on i need to get a new one but it's still alive so it's That's still my favorite cool. piece this is a question from the great depreston from instagram what's your opinion about documentaries like seaspiracy 
Oh, God. <laughs> you don't have to answer yeah, if you for, want to. Well, no, I do. I mean, when the documentary came out last year, I was very... I was torn. I was upset on one way because it was very... I, I don't even want to call it a documentary because it's not documenting. Documentaries should be neutral and they should present facts that you know are well-researched. And that is everything that that film didn't do. So um, they even pretty much used scientists interviews and pretty much just cut out parts just to fit their agenda um so what made me so angry really more than anything was that it could have been such a powerful piece or such a powerful documentary if without even twisting facts around right because it was very well produced and i i'm i'm a little bit mad at the scientific community that we are unable to produce something like that just with the right facts, you know, with the actual well-researched facts. Hmm. And so we give room to people like those filmmakers that, you know, are, sorry, but just kind of simplifying very complex um, happenings. And then, of course, get a very emotional global reaction. And then don't even know how to harness it either, right? I mean, also, we have to keep in mind that there was a very clear vegetarian or vegan, more than anything, vegan agenda behind the film, um, which I don't even think it's bad. It's just that I think it is actually detrimental to the vegan movement if they keep on or if we keep on, you know, presenting facts that are not true, right? If we're misinterpreting scientific data. So again, we're coming back to the fact that we need scientists to help communicate science correctly, right? So if not, things like that happen. Dr. Figner, now we're going to go into a section of short random questions, okay? <laughs> the first one is, which nation is more environmentally conscious, Germany or Costa Rica? Mm, I think it has a longer tradition in Germany and I've only come to realize actually living not in Germany anymore. But I have also to say that like my chosen home, Costa Rica, I'm very proud of it because with, you know, being a country that is still developing um, in certain aspects and, and not having the economic power that Germany has, I think Costa Rica is leading like incredible efforts, right? I mean... Uh, renewable energy wise, for example, we are a lot better here in Costa Rica than we are in Germany. In Costa Rica, it's 100% renewable energies. So we get 100. So we have geothermal, geothermal energy and wind power and um, water power. So that's like our mains and it's 100%. We actually produce so much that we're selling to Nicaragua and Panama. And then, um, of course, like, for example, what's not so great in Costa Rica is that Germany has a lot better regulations in place about for example how things can be packaged um mm -hmm. how healthy the food can be uh for people as well um which you know costa rica it's a, it's, it's 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 definitely one of the examples where you can see companies that definitely know how to produce healthy foods for example for germany just dump their absolutely trash food onto a country where people are not educated enough to sometimes know what's what's better Yeah, um, and of course our trash, um, our trash system here in Costa Rica sucks big time. I mean, we even here in the small communities we don't even have trash pickup, so we need to we need to burn our trash in the backyard. This this leads so. me to the question: Which conservation measure would you think is more efficient, 
charging more for plastic products with a tax or something, or lowering the frequency that trash is picked up, which is basically asking like, where do you think people hurt more in money or being uncomfortable having the trash at home? Ah, uh, okay. Well, because, because this happened to me. Sorry, because this happened to me. I lived in Germany a little bit, and the plastic trash pickup comes only every two weeks. And the first two weeks, I had like four bags of plastic because I came with my U.S. mind using plastic for everything. And then I said, no, I, I don't want to have plastic bags all over my house. And I reduced all the plastic use that I didn't even know I was using so much until I had to accumulate it myself. Well, you did like a little plastic survey there yourself. Um, well, I guess it totally depends. I mean, I think, for example, in Germany that might work. Also, people are very stingy in Germany. So ever since I can remember, we always had a fee on plastic bags in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, I remember very clearly that, you know, people that were buying plastic bags, they were kind of considered, you know, trashy. I mean, you just that, that was just something you didn't do. You know, you brought your own bags. Mm -hmm. If you had some kind of, you know, I don't know, some respect for yourself and, and, and everybody else. So it was really the people that kind of were trashy that bought plastic bags at the supermarket counter. And um, and I'm not really talking about, you know, rich and poor here. We're really talking about that, you know, it doesn't matter how old or young or rich and poor you were. You brought your own bags. That was just a fact of life. And I think it still is in Germany, actually. And <laughs> um, what is the next single use plastic you would like to ban? If you could, everything. Um, but definitely, I mean, I, I, I still can't comprehend that in the U.S. you still have plastic bags for free in your supermarket store. And every time it gives me anxiety when you go grocery shopping and you have literally people that walk out with like 40 plastic bags, partially even double bag things, you know, in tiny bags. And I was like, why? I mean, you have your cars. I mean, it's not like even you, like in Germany, you ride your bike or anything. Mm -hmm. No, you have your car, ride car outside. So have a box in there, have your own bags. Like you really do not need to get all those plastic bags. Um, and then of course, everything that has to do with your way of, you know, um, of eating out, styrofoam, boxes to take, your, your food home, straws, cutlery, all of that just shouldn't happen it really shouldn't i like that you always highlight that plastic is a great material or a great invention and that the problem is the way humans abuse of it considering that and, and here comes the random question if you could go back in time would you stop the invention of plastic considering the benefits and the costs would you stop it if you no, had a chance no i would not I would not prevent the invention of plastic, but I would prevent the use in, for example, in as a single use, yes. Because I think you are taking a material that is made for eternity, right? It's literally unbreakable. It is super flexible. It's super everything. And you're using it for products that are only meant to be used for, you know, mere seconds, minutes, and then thrown away. So that is what I would prevent, that I would say, okay, we have this miracle material, but we're not allowed to use it for anything but dot, 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 you know, where it's really kind of necessary. And I like that you always highlight that people don't have to be perfect. They just have to reduce the use of plastic. And that re reminds me of an argument I heard, I heard in a tech talk regarding how much meat we eat. 
And the guy ended the talk saying, if all of us eat half much meat, it would be like half of us are vegetarian. Is this the same right. logic you would like to apply yes. for plastic use? Uh, yes. And plus, you know, you know, what really is off-putting is this very aggressive way of pointing fingers. So what I'm trying to do is to really educate people and say, look, It's not so much that, you know, I say you have to do that because of my moral compass, but look, this is the data that exists, right? I mean, in, in the case of plastic, it's really, it's not healthy. It is really not healthy. In the case of eating meat, it's, you know, we already know that it's not good for our climate. And if you, you know, uh, acknowledge that climate change exists, then that is one of the fixes that we need to do. And then I'm just thinking it is so incredibly exhausting to be perfect all the time i mean who who is really always perfect i mean wow it's impressive if people really are i have a hard time believing that you're always like 100% on 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 oh, and i think point. it's impossible to live without contradictions you know right but then i think it's difficult you know to criticize so hard if you're not perfect mm -hmm. right so that means i much rather say you know what try what you can but really try and then you know we get a lot of people on board because it also, I feel in this community, it, it's about feeling good about, you know, what you do and how you can help. And this is how I try to approach the whole thing, because I really don't think that, you know, it doesn't do us any good if we have a handful of people that, you know, live completely plastic free, but, you know, 99% don't even care about it. So I think it would be a lot better if like 50%, 60%, 70%, 80% would care about it and just say, you know what, I try to reduce it. And then we have, you know, a way bigger reduction in plastic as if it's just, you know, done by the handful. Yeah, and I had this conversation with friends when I told them I was going to have the pleasure of talking with you that they said, like some non-scientific friends, they said like, but plastic straws, are they really a problem? Because it's, we ban plastic straws and then there is all the rest of the use of the plastic. And what I was trying to tell them, and maybe you have better words for that, is that, The plastic straw is a symbol to start something, right? Exactly. Well, exactly. It was never, and that is what I'm always trying to say, it was never just about the plastic straw. Actually, if you look at the title of my video, it's, it says, say no to single-use plastic. Yeah. Because it is, you know, a massive category of different items that, like I said, it's, you know, made from a material that is made for eternity that we're only using for a very, very short time. It's just that the plastic straw is an item that everybody uses. I mean, it's so, you know, it's so prevalent and everybody can, I, I'm pretty sure that everybody has used it at one point in their life. And so I think if people just start to think about, you know, how many plastic straws they are using, a lot of times they don't stop because that is the next step. And they're thinking, well, if plastic straws are already so, you know, plentiful, but they're probably not the only items. What else is out there? And like, wow, I'm using a lot of grocery bags every time I go shopping. And then the next thing is like, wow, I have a lot of plastic, you know, in my trash can every week. So maybe what do I really need from that? Do I really need to rebuy it? Maybe there's something that is not packaged in plastic, or maybe I just don't buy it at all, you know, because it's not really, I mean, what's more important, right? So that kind of comes down to those choices. And I think then, people start to understand that, yeah, it's not just about plastic straws, and it never was. Dr. Figener, I'm, I'm going to start rounding up this interview. Um, I could talk hours and hours because you have, <laughs> you speak so well and you have so many stories. But 
I'm gonna ask you a, lot, a little bit more personal questions, okay? If you don't like any question, just tell me, and I, I, you don't have to answer, okay? Okay, sounds good. What is your top three species ranking besides hump whales and turtles? Because I know you love hump whales and and turtles. Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, I really like elephants. Um, what else do I like? I really like harpier eagles, and I really like sloth. I don't know if it's a ranking down. Yeah, I saw I saw your program with is it Paula on Undertier? Something like that. A German a German television show that they went to Costa Rica and you did a couple of episodes with her. Oh Paula, yeah, yeah. yeah. Paula and the wild animals. That was like a children's documentary, yeah. And you did one about sloth, one about iguanas, and uh -huh. one of course about turtles. Right. How was that experience? Yeah, I It was fun. I mean, that was probably the first time I was like in front of a of a camera like that. And it was it was fun. I mean, the production team was really nice, and we had a lot of fun while while we were filming. <laughs> so, you live in a really paradisiac place. I mean, lots of people would love to go on vacations where you live. Where do you go on vacations? Do you go to the mountains or do you go to to the cities, like just to to do opposites? You know what? It depends. I usually go where there's animals I want to see. <laughs> so, yeah, it has nothing to do with... I think the only country that was really... The country was Japan. But other than that, it's really more about animals that I want to see and then go there to see them. Okay. What is a turtle superpower that you would like to have? Because you mentioned in some podcasts that they have they heal super fast. And you also mentioned how strong they are. And in, in your latest paper, you talk about the endurance they have. Um, uh, maybe I'm I missing think, something else. No. Well, they have a lot of other stuff. But I think I would like to have the tranquility, at least, you know, what it looks like, the, the calmness about them. Because I think I'm very active and very high strung. And sometimes it's very hard for me to just kind of chill out. So... It's really funny that I actually work with those animals because, you know, maybe you should think that just like a dog owner is like, like that dog. You should think that the scientist that studies a species is a little bit like their species, but I don't <laughs> think that's the case for me. This is a hard one. Do you know an idiom that has the same meaning, but it's said in different ways in Spanish, English, and German? Yeah, like telephone. No, no, but actually, I'm, always. But an idiom, like an expression. Oh, uh, yeah, as well. Um, well, I don't know if it's in. in uh, let me think of Spanish. Well, I, I do have certain things like in English, but also I'm one of those people. I just translate random German expressions, which do not make sense in either language usually. For example. Um, like for example, like. Uh, Like too many, too many cooks. Uh, like uh, life is not a wish concert. That doesn't even make sense. It just means that you can't like wish for everything. Like certain things are just the way they are. You know, mm -hmm. so it's not like you can request a song. Yeah, <laughs> I like the one that they say uh, when you have a song stuck in your head. They call it oh, an earworm. Earworm, right? Yeah. Is that, is that in English too? Well, I think it is one of those words that the English language is starting to use just because it's a good word and you, they didn't have one before. So in the acknowledgements of your thesis, you say, thanks to my husband, Andre, for not only sticking with me through this roller coaster, ri roller coaster ride, but also by being my most valuable player during field work. 
Is he yeah. like helping you a lot in the field? Yeah, well, we actually ran our NGO together and um well, so we met during field work 16 16 years ago now. And yeah, so you know, he and he and I we have led so many projects together even before my PhD and there is a certain thing I don't have to explain to him anymore. And so especially during my PhD just collecting the amount of data that I did it's like it was so helpful to just have him with me and you know when all the other research assistants were already asleep I literally stayed with him just you know a few hours longer and just collected a few more hundred samples where I didn't have to walk him through the whole process right where we could just literally in silence just like at a um like an assembly line right just kind of do our thing and it's so nice when you feel how fluid it is and like how you know the pretty much without communicating you can just kind of do your thing so i still i think he's my favorite person to work with in the field with maybe one or two exceptions do you guys separate work and family or is it always <laughs> is it possible you're coming to the very important question if like i have a work life balance and i can tell you i probably don't <laughs> <laughs> like the past two years we actually uh worked out of our private home like so we had 2020 during the pandemic year we had all our assistants from outside living with us in our like house house um up until last year we still had one assistant living here and then also you know the whole equipment is stored here and it was kind of the base for for for, for one of our projects so it is difficult to really separate private life and and work life because it's so fluid. In which language do you communicate? So when we first met I didn't speak any Spanish so we spoke English. Then when I learned Spanish it was mainly Spanish then when we moved to uh, Germany for a while we actually spoke German and we had a time where we were trying to you know that he wouldn't lose his German that we would like speak Spanish and German. And then if we don't want somebody to understand it depends you know what that person doesn't speak so we yeah. <laughs> use whatever language do you think in spanish already oh yeah i dream and talk i mean i've been told that i i, I sleep uh, talk in my sleep and i do speak spanish german and english when i sleep talk so and then i think this is super strong and it's the dedication of your doctoral thesis do you mind if i read it sure <laughs> <laughs> It says, I am dedicating my dissertation to all the women that came before me and paved my way in science, the women that have mentored me over the past two decades, and all the women that will come after me. You're probably the only one that ever read my dedication, but yay. <laughs> This is kind of what I try to live by because my experience is that you know there is only two types of women in academia that is one that i mean they both have grown up in a hostile system you know if you think about that you know professors nowadays started in i don't know the 50s 60s 70s when they you know were students and then became professors and so of course i understand there is a high level of frustration with the system in place where we you know we talked about it a lot of males but the difference between those two types of women is you know how they are dealing with it nowadays and there is either the woman that is so bitter about it and i feel they want to kind of put every woman through the same ordeal that they have also kind of suffered through and so they don't make it any easier actually in fact they sometimes make it even more difficult for women 
maybe to toughen them up, maybe to kind of, you know, I don't know, it's weird, sadistic thing. I, I don't know what their motivations is. And I don't even think that they even realize it. And the second one is that woman that really decided, no, I want to pretty much break out of this devil's circle, right? I want to pretty much use my position that I now hold to reach out to women and help them to navigate that really hostile flow, to kind of pro that, provide them opportunities that I didn't have. And, you know, that also a lot of times I was so grateful that I had a female PhD advisor because there were so many topics I was able to discuss with her, which are unique to women that, you know, she was able to advise me on what I would have never been able to discuss with men. Um, yeah, so I, I just hope that I'm going to be the second type and that I'm really empowering women, that, you know, I'm helping other women to navigate academia and science and make it a better place, not a worse place. Dr. Figener, how can people reach you? Uh, you can, for example, go to my website, uh, seaturtlebiologist.com. I think that's where you probably find everything you need including email and ways of how to contact me. And how can people help you? That is also on that website. So support my work. There's also uh, ideas of how you can support my work. I am pretty active. I think my strongest platform on social media is probably Instagram. Um, also sea turtle biologist there. So if you want to learn more about sea turtles and science and plastic pollution and my life in Costa Rica, that's the place to go. Is there anything you would like to say to our audience? I think we all have a part to play in this life and we all have a certain power and don't ever think that your choices don't matter. They actually do. And, you know, there's a lot of other people out there in the world that haven't given up yet and they are in the same fight as we are. And so you just need to find them and we can change the world together. Dr. Figener, this is my only German. Haven't seen eine gute Zeit? Yes, I did have a good time. Good, good. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate you coming into, into Science Stories. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. And now, instead of listening to the usual song, we're going to listen to Dr. Figener singing her own song, Gates of Eden. He came out of the rainbow He said, give me one day of your life Spellbound, how could I say no? Sweet Suddenly knew what it's like The clouds about me Looked different that day And soon reality was fading away Walking side by side And I felt a touch of Paradise and the sun 
Gates of Eden. 